0: Us And it's Dr. Surin, I'm going to try this last name, Sir Surmogasinduram, pretty good, I mean, I think so, Allison Blake and Cheryl Straza. Before I introduce them, I'm going to provide some background about the session itself. Um, similarly to all the previous huddles, we're going to start off with a Q&A session with Dr. S um, or Dr. Shan, who will be responding to the questions that you submitted ahead of time. And then we'll open the floor up for any follow-up questions. Afterwards, we're gonna have a patient-led discussion um, by Allison and Cheryl, who are members of our Hubble community, and they have been diagnosed and undergone treatment for retinopathy. So as Ali says, they're retinopathy survivors. We're gonna be audio taping, um, as you heard on the recording, um, and be, we're gonna be posting it on the website like we do every uh, month, just because people miss um, it sometimes. And we're gonna ask everyone like always to mute their um, microphone uh, when others are speaking, we have two ground rules. The first one is one person talks at a time, so be respectful of one another. And the second one is if there is a discussion associated with a specific question and it goes beyond let's say five minutes, I'll just give a signal and so we can um, close that up and so everyone has a chance to talk and ask questions. So now um, I'd like to introduce our guests. Dr. Surin Samagasantharam, also known as Dr. Shan, is a cataract and refractive eye surgeon at the London Eye Center in Vancouver. He obtained both his medical degree from the University of Ottawa and completed his postgrad studies in ophthalmology at the University of British Columbia. Dr. Shan has been a cataract and cataract and refractive surgeon since 1995. He's currently on the teaching faculty in the Department of Ophthalmology and Visual Sciences at UBC. Aside from his clinical and teaching duties, he also has served um, as a former president um, of the BC Society of Eye Physicians and Surgeons, as a section editor and a reviewer for Canadian Journal of Ophthalmology, as well as on various medical committees. His research interests are focused on clinical Service delivery. Um, When he's not busy working or conducting research, he enjoys spending time with his wife, his three kids, and two dogs. Okay, so Dr. Shan, do you want to introduce? Do you want to say a couple words before I dive right into the questions?
1: Well, just uh, thank you so much for inviting me. It's a pleasure to be here, and uh, and I hope that uh, that you guys find this uh, interesting. Learn hopefully I'll learn some things too.
0: Okay, great. So. I'm going to start um, the first question is from Nadia. How does blood pressure influence eye health?
1: So um, we kind of break it down into low blood pressure and high blood pressure. So low blood pressure um, is uncommon but in settings like trauma and and sort of surgeries um, you can actually get decreased blood flow and damage to eye and brain. High blood pressure um, causes small vessel damage and so, Diabetes damages um, the the eye as well as other parts in the body by causing small blood vessel damage. Hypertension accelerates that or or is a a sort of one that that, that compounds it. So um, high blood pressure is one of those things that tends to accelerate um, diabetic retinopathy because it's a separate risk factor causing vascular damage.
0: Okay, Nadia, are you here? If you're here, would you like to follow up?
2: No, that's good. I just, I had recently heard about that link and I had never heard it before. So just kind of wanted to hear it from another source, I guess. So
0: thank you. So I'll follow up. Um, Dr. Shan, so does that, does that mean that people who have metabolic syndrome, you know, high blood sugar, high blood fat, high blood pressure, they're at greatest risk for retinopathy? So,
1: yeah. I mean, what we see is actually renal failure and hypertension are the two ones that, that tend to go together. And it's because we sort of separate off Small vessel disease, arteriosclerosis, big vessel disease, atherosclerosis. Um, most of what we see in the eye is small vessel disease. Uh, the other things you were talking about, cholesterol, um, you know, body fat, you know, body habitus, um, smoking, though, those primarily are, are things that accelerate atherosclerosis, so large vessel disease. Um, so... Um, actually, for, for just straight retinopathy, it's it's primarily renal disease and hypertension. All the other things are bad for large vessel disease, which are strokes and heart attacks.
0: Okay. Um, the next question is from anonymous. Could you speak to management of blood sugars in relation to developing retinopathy in t one ds um, Do prolonged high blood sugar levels put type ones at risk for retinopathy?
1: Uh, so the short answer to that is yes. I mean, uh, 25 years ago when I actually was uh, training, people didn't know for sure. And that's because when you did short-term studies and you got people's sugars under better control, things got worse. Um, and it's because there's this lag time. The, the damage that happens from sugars takes a little while to manifest. The improvement that, take, that happens when you control your sugars takes a bit longer before you see it. So there's a clear link between developing serious retinopathy and uh, glycemic control. Um, And if you are out of whack and you get it back into whack, it takes a year or so for, for things to actually stabilize afterwards. And does everybody know what serious disease we're talking about? So I mean, after 10 years, pretty much every type 1 diabetic has some retinopathy. The two bad things that we worry about are called clinically significant macular edema, which is fluid leakage near the center of the eye and new blood vessel growth or proliferative retinopathy. Those are the bad things.
0: Okay, great. And um, I'll have a follow-up question is, if you were to, let's say you, you had bad um, or poor blood sugar control for like four years when you were in university and now you're like 45, does that, I mean, does it matter? Like, did you kind of so like oh, you're under better control now, but there definitely was a stint in your life where um, your blood sugar wasn't doing too well.
1: I mean, the nice part is that your body has the ability to heal. So, I mean, um, one of the things I tell people are that there's this lag time. So if your sugars are high and your eye looks good, that's a great time to sort of deal with it. And on the flip side, if you've had bad sugar control and and you have retinopathy changes, if you get that under control and your body heals that up, it's like nothing ever happened. So, um, I mean, it's not completely 100% better, but certainly as you have a few years past uh, past proglycemic control, your body does have the ability to repair some of the damage that happens and uh, and you actually return pretty, pretty close to where you started from.
0: Okay, um, any follow-up questions from that? Okay, so the next one is from Nadia and Anonymous. Uh, are floaters an indication of an issue with retinopathy? I can tell my vision changes if my blood sugars are high. Why is this? So There's two questions in there. Let's start with the first one. Are floaters sure. an indication of retinopathy?
1: So, I mean, a floater just tells you that there's something in, inside the eye in the vitreous cavity that's casting a shadow. In non-diabetics, most of the time we think that's just vitreous jelly, the stuff that's normally in there that is solid when you're young, that has liquefied as you get older. The concern as uh, with, with being a type 1 diabetic is that this can be blood. So new a shower of new floaters is always a concern in a, in a type 1 diabetic because we worry that this is a sign of vitreous hemorrhage, which can happen because of Um, either proliferative retinopathy or because of of, uh, more mild retinopathy that's bleeding. Um, But you can also get the usual thing, which is the the vitreous jelly sort of uh, breaking apart. So generally, our answer is that a new uh, bunch of floaters in an eye is something that requires your your eyes to be checked. And even if you've had it before and it's gotten away and you have new floaters again, you got to go back and check that out.
0: Okay, and the second part of the question was: I can tell my vision changes when my blood sugars are high. Why is this?
1: Um, now that's because of the lens of your eye. So the lens of your there's two optical surfaces in the eye: cornea and lens. Um, they bend light. They focus it on the back of the eye. Uh, your cornea kind of doesn't do much when your sugars go up. Your lens basically swells. It, it gets bigger, and as that happens, it changes its shape and it changes the focus of your eye. So a lot of times the first diagnosis of diabetes happens because of vision changes. Um, And if your sugars are out of whack for a while, and I mean, so probably more than a few hours, your your lens will swell, and then it takes a little bit of time for it to to sort of go back to normal. Um, It's also one of the reasons why we don't like to prescribe glasses if you are kind of a bit out of whack because your prescription may not be at its usual. and, And if we give you the glasses then, uh, they'll be wrong once you get things stabilized.
0: Okay. Uh, Nadia, do you have any follow-ups with?
2: Yeah, no, I definitely, I got the wrong prescription because my blood sugars were high one time. So uh, that, that sucked. <laughs> and I got contacts as a result of it too. So just kind of curious that it's that it's lens up. For some reason, I thought it was like, just like the, like maybe the refractive index of the vigorous humor or like whatever. So, but that's good to know that it's like the lens itself.
0: Um, next question is from Anonymous. Are there any options for getting rid of eye floaters even when they are not due to urgent retinal problems?
1: Floaters are a bit of the bane of our existence. So, I mean, they're they're usually minor, but they're quite annoying, and, and we don't have any great answers to them. So, um, the over time, um, the vitreous does tend to liquefy and break apart, um, and Solid bits in there tend to drop to the bottom of the eye or, or break up. So given, given time they go away, but I, uh, I have a bunch myself and I can tell you that, that my my time period, I tell people has stretched from six months to a year to, well, whenever they decide they're going to get better. So, so one is you wait it out. Um, if there is a, a fixed solid blob near the center of your vision, we can use a laser to blow that up. Now, the problem is it doesn't take them away, it just makes them smaller so you've got space between them. So it's good for floaters that are sort of fixed and don't really move very well. Um, Not very good if it's just the fact that there's, you know, all these fruit flies going in. Um, We can do vitrectomies where we actually operate on the inside the eye, we break up the vitreous jelly, suck it out. That's a pretty major undertaking for, for floaters. Um, the um, so we, we tend to do that in extreme cases where it affects people's vision. They are working uh, now. That vitreous jelly is actually the framework on which new blood vessels proliferative retinopathy happens. So the drug companies are actually working on injectable enzymes, basically that would break up the what gels the vitreous and and sort of liquefies it. Um, and if that works for diabetes and, it, and it's cheap enough and safe enough, it might be something that people use for floaters. But at the moment, not the answer is either give it time, laser if it's central and not moving, vitrectomy if they're they're really serious and and they're interfering with vision. Um,
0: the person who asked that question, if you're on screen, um, would you like to follow up? No, oh, no, thank you, thank you, this is great. Oh, okay, good. Um, I actually have a follow-up. I'm gonna do all my follow-ups. Um, so you mentioned that um, it takes six six months to two years to resolve floaters. So does that mean that every floater you have will resolve? It's just when, how long it takes? That's, that's pretty
1: much the case. Um, so, um, I, I am just gonna sneeze I'm going to mute so I don't bother <laughs> all right sorry that 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 pass um so when we look at 75 or 80 year olds their their vitreous is completely liquid and uh, and really if there's anything that happens it just drops very quickly to the bottom of their eye like a like a snow globe if you look at Twenty-year-olds, their gel, their vitreous is completely solid, and you know there's nothing, there's no liquid in there for there to be a floater. So there's a long period in there. There's there's 50 years between those two, but but uh, given given enough time, the, they do tend to go away and, and get better. Um, but it, it is a while. It, it depends a little bit on how how you know if there's strands of stuff holding them in place. If they're kind of dense to start off with, it'll take longer. If they're smaller and and a little bit more mobile, they tend to get better faster. So yes, eventually, but uh, that eventually can be can be quite a while. Okay,
3: uh, I have um, uh, can I uh, follow up on this question? Are there any specific uh, factors that may lead to uh, like having these filters that we should be able we may be able to take care of or like? or or oppositely something that we could do, we may have less chance of getting
1: floaters? So there's, there's really not much that, uh, that you can do. Um, a lot of it does depend on just the anatomy of your eye. Um, so people that are highly myopic, uh, very short-sighted, tend to get floaters at a younger age, tend to get more of them. Um, trauma to the eye can cause, can cause issues if you have, Uh, bleeding in the eye from from, you know, your diabetes that that obviously can cause a bunch of floaters. Um, So generally, it's not stuff that you have any control over. Um, But you're right, the if you if these things that that you don't have control over, so if you have trauma to the eye, if you're born with sort of short sightedness, um, you are you are probably going to have more troubles over a lifetime.
4: Thank you.
0: Um, next question is from Eva. Hi Eva, what kind of things should patients with type one watch for in our vision?
1: So getting back to serious retinopathy, um, the, two, the two things that we wanna catch and treat are um, macular edema, so fluid under the retina. Um, if you take, uh, you know, a movie screen and you crinkle it up, your, your picture is going to be distorted. And so that's the problem with fluid leakage under the retina. It causes distortion. The signs of that are straight lines being wavy. Uh, so we tell everybody that's got sort of eye disease, you know, check each eye separately, because it's amazing how one eye can get blurry. And if you're not paying attention, your brain just compensates by using the other eye. So check each eye separately look for distortion, Um, door frames, windows, any kind of straight edge is is the best for that. Uh, Proliferative retinopathy generally turns up because of bleeding. So if you see a shower of new red or black spots in your vision, then that's something you should look for. Uh, the only thing I'll add to that is that retinopathy tends to progress in a predictable manner. So usually um, I'd like to be the first one to pick things up and not you because that means that I've been following it well and we've seen it progress and we intervene at a, at the right time. So you know regular follow-ups are, are kind of the key because it doesn't go from zero to 100 uh, overnight. It, it generally takes a few years of, of progressive change. And if you catch it early and then we follow it carefully, we can jump in sooner.
0: Okay, Eva, did you wanna follow up? Okay, so I actually have a question about that. So um, is there are there symptoms you can catch before you get the actual diagnosis of retinopathy? You know how like you can have pre-diabetes and if you catch it right in that window of six and 6.4, you can actually never get diagnosed with diabetes? Like is there is that the same with retinopathy where you, you catch something so early that the retinopathy diagnosis is never gonna happen because you're kind of on top of things? Um, well,
1: I mean, I, I guess the answer, uh, if you're you're truly diabetic, um, 100% of people will get some sort of retinopathy within 10 years. Um, You know, with type 1s, it's pretty clear cut. With type 2s, there's people that are sort of on the borderline, and that similar number at 10 years is 90%. So there's certainly some type 2s that never get retinopathy. Um, And if you think about it, it's, it's about the amount of time and the magnitude that the sugars are elevated. If your sugars between meals or before meals are always normal, but they just go up a little bit after meals, you're not gonna, you're not gonna get damage as easily as if they're up mm-hmm. 24 hours a day. If you, if you look like histologically, so people who die, you will probably see some clinical changes that, that we don't see. That's why there's that five-year window before people get retinopathy. There's probably, there are changes happening. It's just so subtle that we we don't see it. Um, So I guess the question uh, you're asking is, you know, can you prevent retinopathy? And if you could control your sugars with, you know, pumps and things like we're doing now so that your, your blood sugar profile over the course of the day is normal, you probably can. Um, all of you know the numbers of 100% retinopathy come from the past when we did not have state control. Um, w- when you get some retinopathy, you can get that go away for a while and then come back because if your sugars are well controlled for a while, um, you'll uh, those da- those changes will heal. And if you don't get any new ones for a while, it looks normal.
0: Okay, and so when you say that um, it, within ten years every person with type one generally um, would have some signs of retinopathy, so does that mean that so when you're ten you you get diagnosed at ten? So at age twenty it wouldn't be unusual if there were some signs.
1: Um, that's right. So there's a there's a thing about um, and yes that's the short answer. I mean for for screening in kids they basically say you know you don't have to screen for the first five years or until they hit puberty uh, because we pretty much don't see anything. Uh, but yes, if you, if you uh, were diagnosed at 10 by 20, we would expect to see some retinopathy in everybody.
5: Okay.
1: Again, that's, that's with insulin shots uh, with a pump and with sort of you know that good glycemic control even postprandially, I don't know. I haven't actually looked to see if there's, there's any evidence to show that that's, uh, that will actually prevent uh, development of retinopathy in, in people.
0: Okay. Um, Great. The next question is from anonymous and you you've answered this, but I'm going to go ahead and ask um, the question. What are the first warning signs and are there any visible warning signs? I've always noticed that my eyes look different when my blood sugars have been running high. So I'm wondering if you notice any changes when you go through retinopathy.
1: Um, Sure. Did you want me to answer the chat questions as well? Because- uh, oh, no, were...
0: Yeah, I'll do the chat questions afterwards. So okay. I'm gonna, yeah, I'm gonna ask all the pre-submitted questions and then I'll follow up with the chat.
1: All right, sounds good. Um, so uh, retinopathy, uh, by definition, we're talking about changes in the back of the eye. Um, diabetes can certainly cause changes at the front of the eye. We talked about the lens changes. Uh, I mean, it, it can, you can get neovascularization at the front of the, the eye. So you can, as people have attested to here, I mean, you can certainly tell something's going on with your eyes when your sugars are out of whack, but that doesn't necessarily mean that you've got retinopathy as the cause for that. So generally early retinopathy does not have any symptoms, um, but high blood sugars, especially if they're really high, 15s to 20s, will certainly cause changes in your vision short-term, which will get better as you bring your sugars down. So just like high blood pressure, uh, the symptoms of it are uh, are quite late, and that's why we're screening uh, to pick it up before it's it's quite late.
0: Okay, I am actually gonna do a, a chat question because it was a follow-up, I think, from the previous question. Um, Allie Blake asks, "What um, what does some degree of retinopathy actually mean?
1: So they, this is actually quite well um, sort of studied. And so the very first changes we will see in people are called microaneurysms. So the obviously there's zero. Eyes look completely normal. Um, the first things that we see in people are areas where the little blood vessels, the support cells around them get damaged. And so they knuckle out and so when we look uh, with the, the, our equipment or with photographs, you see tiny little red spots. And these are little knuckles of blood vessels. And the problem is that they leak a bit of fluid, they leak a bit of blood. And so around those, you can see uh, bleeding and, uh, and fluid leakage. So that, that's what I mean by, by some. The, the very first changes, microaneurysms, um, they cause no symptoms, but we see them when we look take photos of the eyes.
0: Um, Ali, did you want to
6: follow up? Uh, just to comment and say absolutely. And the system in the UK is such that if you're a type 1 diabetic and an adult, you're asked to go for uh, basically a retinal photograph, as they call it, with a, with a team every year or six months. And they look, they actually count the microaneurysms and the they draw the line at seven if you have seven or more then they refer you to the retinal specialist and I know the system here is different so I just I was interested in in how you uh, it, it's the same it's the same principle but uh, I, the healthcare approach here is different because I don't think that uh, eye doctors you know in small towns in BC look for seven as a number and then refer you they just take a look and I'm not sure how they decide if they refer you. So that's kind of where I was coming from.
1: I mean, as a quick answer to your question, um, so telehealth um, is one of the things that for diabetic screening has a lot of potential. I mean, our problem in, in BC and in Canada is we have a few people scattered across a lot of space. The UK has the advantage of many more people concentrated in a smaller space. So um, you're right, having family physicians look to try and screen is not very good because they will tend to miss um, early changes, whereas uh, photographs are fantastic. So we've certainly done some screening um, trials of sending uh, technicians out with cameras and taking photos in communities that uh, have poor access to eye care, and then having them read by an ophthalmologist and then you know making sure the people who need to be seen our our flag to come down. So there's some work to do there, I I agree.
0: Okay, next question from anonymous. My vision has really been affected during the last year. Should I ask my family doctor to try to speed up my next eye care appointment?
1: Uh, Absolutely yes, I mean, you know, I think it doesn't matter whether you're diabetic or not. One of the main things that we want to see in ophthalmology are people whose vision are changing because you cannot tell what's causing it until you have a, a proper eye exam. So um, uh, absolutely, it may not be diabetic, but uh, if you have a change in your vision, um, that's certainly something that that warrants a, a sooner examination than your, your regular.
0: Okay, um, did the person who asked that question want to follow up? Okay, next question is from anonymous. What will you suggest for preventing age-related macular degeneration um, to a person with 35 years of having type one and um, an AMD genetic factors? And you can define what that means.
1: (laughs) Yeah, so um, uh, first of all, um, age-related macular degeneration um, has links to a few genetic loci which this this person had had referenced um our current understanding of it is that for everybody the light that you used to see causes some damage in the back of the eye um, your body's immune system fires up cleans it out um, shuts down in people who get macular degeneration your immune system doesn't shut down properly and over years it grumbles along and causes damage um it is a different part of the retina than the part that, that diabetes affects, so it, it doesn't tend to be additive to diabetic retinopathy, but obviously the visual effect, if you have both things, is because if you damage different parts of the eye, they still get damaged and, and you don't see as well. Um, currently, so we break macular degeneration up into two parts. We have dry macular degeneration, where you simply have deaths of light receptors because they don't get enough blood and oxygen. Uh, you have wet macular degeneration. Your body tries to fix this by growing new blood vessels. They break, they bleed, they make things worse. Uh, for dry macular degeneration, uh, we our best advice is sun protection: hat with a broad brim, sunglasses. Uh, number two. Um, antioxidants. So, antioxidants are things that help your body fight off sun damage. There is an enormous list of them. You can get them in your diet from oily fish and greens and um, tomatoes and uh, blueberries. You can, most multivitamins have them. Um, you can get it in a specific i-vitamin. Um, taking antioxidants and good sun protection is the best way of slowing the progression of macular degeneration form. Uh, There's clinical trials looking for more specific treatments, nothing out there. Wet macular degeneration, we have some good therapies for. About a third of people with macular degeneration get that. Um, Again, like the distortion story I was telling you for macular edema, fluid leakage in your macula from macular degeneration gives you distortion. Straight lines getting wavy, and that's another sign uh, that you got to get in and and have it checked out um, uh, to, to see if you need specific therapy for that.
0: Okay.
3: Um, did the person who wanted uh, ask that question want to follow up? Jess, um, what is the early signs of macular degeneration? Uh, extreme- uh, so, um,
1: so symptoms are what you notice, signs are what we see, right? So um, again, when we image the eye, we will see collections of uh, of abnormal uh, abnormal stuff underneath the retina, we can see new blood vessel growth, we can see the pigment, the color The color is irregular. Uh, what you would notice in terms of symptoms, of blind spots in your central vision, uh, distortion, straight lines being wavy, just generally decreased eyesight. So um, it, again, you know, if we're talking about a change in your eyesight, you don't see as well.
3: So is the change in the eyesight because of this reason, gradual, or is it something abruptly fast?
1: So it depends. Dry macular degeneration tends to be gradual. Um, Wet macular degeneration tends to be a little bit more sudden and abrupt. So um, either one could be, um, and and unless you kind of check your eyes out, we can't really tell whether it's one of those things or cataracts or just glasses. Um, So it could be either.
3: It's like with the normal, I uh, especially squeeze visit that I do have for diabetes. Also, this is checked or is it something I should ask for?
1: Uh, absolutely. So um, when the, the, the testing that we do to look for diabetes would also pick up other retinal disease like macular degeneration. So you're welcome to ask. Uh, they should be able to tell you, but there's no special testing you need to do uh, in addition. Mm, thank you.
0: Okay, great. The next question is from Melanie. Since being diagnosed with type one nearly two years ago, I've experienced periods of what I'm told is dry eyes. I saw, uh, I saw a great deal and often have blurred vision and itchy eyes. It doesn't necessarily go with high blood sugars as my control is fairly good. Is this likely a part of type one or just coincidental?
1: So as far as I know, there's not a big overlap between uh, diabetes and and dry eyes. Uh, So the the biggest risk factors for for dryness um, are um, age. Um, I mean, for all of us, as we get older, um, the eyes tend to get more dry, Uh, particularly for women around menopause, the hormonal changes tend to to cause a lot more dryness Um, environment. So if you're in a dry environment, um, that can make it worse. And then finally, using your eyes um, when you concentrate, when all of us concentrate on things like crafts, computer screens, reading, our blink rate goes down. And so the eyes dry out more. So um, those are generally the things that predispose you to dryness. Diabetes is certainly not one of the big ones in there. Um, and there are these days some fairly good therapies for dry eyes. I mean, artificial teardrops are, are uh, used to be the only thing that we had to offer, and now we have some medicated drops that increase tear production. We have um, uh, plugs to to plug the tear drainage system. Um, you know, environmental modification with humidifiers. All all that stuff works quite nicely.
0: Okay, Melanie, if you're here, did you want to follow up?
3: Okay. Um, next, uh, can I ask a question on this uh, is there anything we should care about when we are choosing the eyedrop like not any substance that is not good to be included or like when I'm choosing one of the eye drops what is the things to consider
1: um absolutely so um the uh, there's there's a few considerations so the first is preservatives um, a lot of ones that come in bottles have preservatives in there, and if you use them frequently, meaning more than four or five times a day, you can get a sensitivity to the preservative. Um, They have different thickening agents, Uh, so wood fiber, cellulose, is sort of the most common hyaluronic acid, which is a more animal sort of protein that uh, that you you would normally produce, um, is in a lot of newer uh, artificial teardrops, Um, so You you do want to look for something that has um, less additives, so less preservatives and and buffers and stuff. And uh, I mean, if you're using the drops frequently, one of the ones with hyaluronic acid would be worthwhile. I I, I tell my patients this all the time. I mean, they're more expensive. So if you're going to use it once or twice a week, you don't need to spend 50 bucks on artificial tears. Anything's fine. If you're putting it in two or three times a day, now you might want to get something that's a little bit better so that you get Less exposure of, of uh, your eye to all those things.
3: Are there any brands you can mention, like having less preservatives and the one the things that are good for? It has been difficult for me. Many of them doesn't have the ingredients on. Many of them so I don't know, so it has been really something difficult for me to choose.
1: So a lot of the newer ones are like Hylo H Y L O eye drop I I letter I uh, hyphen drop. Uh, Theolaz, T-H-E-A-L-O-Z. Some of the old stalwarts, refresh, genteel, uh, sustain. I mean, they are reasonable artificial tears. They they, they are thickened with wood fiber, uh, but they come preservative free. Um, So those would be some of the ones you might wanna try out.
0: Thank you. Okay, our next question is from anonymous. Is laser, and this is regarding treatment. Is laser surgery for vision correction safe for people with retinopathy treated um, who have had retinopathy and been treated for it? So laser treatment more than 15 years ago.
1: Um, So uh, laser, uh, so let's let's break that down. So um, diabetes is a relative contraindication to laser refractive surgery. So it's certainly not an absolute. Um, There are two major laser procedures out there. Um, So there's PRK. Uh, in PRK, we strip the skin surface, we reshape the cornea, we wait for the, the, the skin surface to heal back. Uh, there's LASIK where we actually cut a flap, we lift it, we laser in the bed, and then we, we, we put it back closed. Um, the primary concern with diabetes um, is actually infection. You know, if you're, if you're diabetic, you tend to have lazy immune cells, lazy white cells, more prone to infection. PRK, because the skin surface of the eye is broken down for five or six days, um, there's a higher risk of infection. We worry a little bit about that. Um, Less of an issue when we do LASIK. Um, The laser procedures themselves create a little bit of inflammation, and inflammation is a worry for accelerating retinopathy. Um, But because it's surface, the amount of inflammation you get is less than if you had cataract surgery or or anything like that and as you guys all know we do cataract surgery all the time in people with uh, with type 1 diabetes because cataracts happen more easily more quickly so I think the the fair answer is that if your sugars are reasonably controlled around the time that you're having your surgery and you have no active retinopathy that requires treatment then then you're fine to go ahead and have laser you probably will have lower risks doing a LASIK type procedure than PRK.
0: Okay, um, the person who asked that, did you want to follow up? Okay, so the next question is related, and so you may have answered it, but it's from Nadia. I've always been told T- uh, type one is a contraindication for corrective surgery. Is this true? I found a clinic in Calgary that seems to be okay doing it, but I'm, I'm nervous about the idea.
5: I mean, I think that
1: the idea there is, is getting to those two issues, um, and so, for people that are higher risk, my, my usual suggestion is talk to your treating physician, whether that's your endocrinologist or your, your family physician, to ensure that your disease is stable enough that you can have, have surgery done. So, um, you know, the, the issues are exactly that. Is your retinopathy active? Is there anything that people are concerned that needs treatment in the near future? Um, is your sugar control uh, good enough that we're, we're not worried about infection risk? Because those are things your ophthalmologist can't answer but uh but the other physicians who treat you can so those are those are what i like to, to have the answers to before we go ahead
2: yeah i just wanted to follow up if you don't mind like i have pretty strong myopathy like i'm a minus mm-hmm. six minus eight so like the the idea that they had was to actually insert a second lens in front of mine um yeah. that's like would that increase the risk compared to laser i don't know if that's the same as prk
1: no, so that's a fake IOL. So fakeic IOLs um, are an option for people where we don't want to operate on the cornea because um, the cornea is too thin. We're worried about the, the irregularity of it. Um, so the plus side of that is that we're not touching your cornea. Um, yes, you, there's an incision in the eye so that you've got the risk of infection in the eye, but uh, we don't do much about it. The biggest concern with fake guy wells is cataract development so they're the very first generation of these like 15, 20 years ago like 20% of people got cataracts that's not within a year that's that's pretty high. These days it's about 1% we already know that you're at increased risk for cataracts with your with your diabetes. Um, now. If you get a cataract, we can take that lens out as part of doing the cataract surgery, but then you've spent all that money on doing it and then it's gonna get taken out and, and be dealt with. So um, it, it's a tough answer to you. I mean, yes, uh, fake eye wells are safe to use. Um, they're an option to not have laser refractive surgery um, and they, they're fine with diabetics. The, the real issue is cataract development uh and and you know if, if you get that like if you've got a cataract and we did cataract surgery we could fix your prescription too so i mean that that but but you're young and that's not likely to happen anytime soon so um so yeah that's my that. hope
2: is like if i can get 30 years out of it before i have cataract and then at least i'm getting my money's worth it. <laughs> yeah <laughs>
0: okay thank you you're welcome Nadia, you also had a question in the chat box. um, And this was, you know, about a conversation that happened probably 10 minutes ago. But um, I have a question about um, can an eye technician adequately screen for this? And I wasn't um, sure screen for what conversation was that?
2: Yeah, retinopathy, all of it. Um, I know Ali has a bit of a story there and, and, and I, I came from Alberta where you saw an actual eye doctor <laughs> and I've always been a really strong advocate but like now that I'm in the interior and I don't have direct access it's like a hard no uh, and so like my confidence in the technicians I mean it's there but and I've had a recent experience too that wasn't super great um, just wondering how much I should be advocating to actually see uh, like a physician compared to that technician.
1: Um, and, and I guess it's a question about what you mean by technician like so I have technicians that work in my office to take the photos and then, then I kind of look at them. So, I, mean, I guess, sorry, The ones oh, that are optometrist.
2: Optometrist. sorry.
1: <laughs> no, So I mean, as I said, UBC does this screening program where we send a technician a photographer off, and they take photos, but they all get read by retinal specialists so they're actually read by by the experts in the field. Um, So optometrists, uh, you know, I guess we start with the answer that there's not enough ophthalmologists to actually provide all the eye care that's needed in the province. There is certainly a difference in the training and abilities of an optometrist and an ophthalmologist. We believe that a proper optometrist should be able to screen and go, hey, this is sort of a threshold where you need to see someone and this is somebody who you don't. We believe and uh, that, you know, again, with digital media, like if you've got the photo and you're not sure, you can just ship it off to, to someone and we're happy to look at it and see. Having said that, I do also know that there's occasions where things get missed because they're seen by the optometrist. They don't see the same things we do and then it kind of gets delayed. So, I mean, I guess the best thing I can say is that, you know, if you're, if you're seeing an optometrist and you're having visual symptoms, that you don't feel are being adequately answered by the, the optometrist, go the, extra, the, go the extra mile. I mean, an optometrist has the ability to refer you to an ophthalmologist. You do not have to, to go to your family physician to, to get that. And so, you know, I, I, I think that's, that's really the answer is if you're in a place where it's difficult to see ophthalmology, but you don't feel like you're getting your, your questions answered or your, your vision's really not doing what you're comfortable with, then then ask for for them to send you on
0: okay all right um so um looking at the chat box a question from jerry what is the cost of a diabetic eye check and is it covered under msp
1: um, yes so i mean our 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 consult fee is 92 bucks i think is what they're paying us these days Um, and, uh, any, anytime you get a referral to see an, an ophthalmologist, it'll be covered. So optometrists there, um, now it gets a little mucky. So, I mean, we don't, we bill the government for everything we do. The optometrists, if you're diabetic, they will bill for the eye exam, but a lot of times things like the retinal photos and stuff, they bill patients for because they don't actually have fee codes for the technology, whereas we do. So um, that, that's usually the, the complaint that I hear is that if you're seeing an optometrist that even though the eye exam is covered, you're still paying some money out of pocket because some of the parts of what, what they do and I do, they, they bill for it.
4: Okay. Uh, Jerry, did you wanna follow up or anything? One question, how long would it take to get a referral to you and who would you ask to refer to you? Uh,
1: so the, the easiest way, so I see referrals from endocrinologists, from family physicians um, and from uh, optometrists. So, um, you know, any one of those three can, can set up the, the referral uh, to, to see me. Um, so, you know, we, we have a couple of months waiting lists to, to see people. Um, But we triage them right so if you are just having a routine check and nothing's going on, um, you know wait a couple months, Um, if you are having new visual symptoms, the ones we've talked about uh, today, um, make sure that's passed on because if I get a note saying they're just in for a diabetic check, you get to wait a couple months if you get. I'm here for a diabetic check because I see new black spots in my vision or distortion of my vision, you get seen much more quickly. So uh, a lot of it is just making sure that, that whoever's referring you um, understands the difference between those two things and communicates it. And you could always call the office, right? I mean, if you get a, an appointment in two months and you're like, this is not right, um, call whoever's office you're, you're um, referred to and say, hey, I don't know if you kind of heard what was going on with my vision, but here's what's going on and, and I'd like to be seen sooner. And we all are very happy to, to do that.
0: Okay, great. Next question. I'm 48 years old and was diagnosed with type one at the age of four. I attended my eye appointment. And I was told I have a very small blood spot. I was devastated to learn of this as it is the start of retinopathy. I always thought this was um, the uh, to panic. Is it still? a need to panic
1: and no it's it's not um I mean you know the I I was looking at the chat the next question under there is do microaneurysms resolve there is a there is the ability of the back of your eye to to recover Uh, so if you came back three months later that blood spot would likely be gone if your sugars were under poor control you would likely have other spots elsewhere whether they're actual bleeds or microaneurysms that's the case So in diabetics that have gone from no retinopathy to some retinopathy, bleeding, microaneurysms, that is a threshold. Now you've gone from, hey, your eyes are perfectly normal to I'm seeing damage. Um, It's usually a moment to reflect on, is your glycemic control reasonable? Um, If the answer is yes, as I said, you know, we expect in most everyone we see some change. And so it's not a reason to panic. So... A little bit does depend on the circumstance, and certainly for someone who's been diabetic for 44 years and just has a little bit of change now, actually, thumbs up. You've done really well to only have a little small blood spot after 44 years.
0: OK, and um, I think uh, you answered Nadia's question about the microarrhings. So microarrhings
1: oh. do resolve. Um, they take a little bit longer than blood. They They will take six months or so to clear. Uh, but I have some lovely photos in, in my office that I show the medical students of, of exactly that, how how the old ones go away, but you get new ones. And, and that's, that's just sort of the way diabetic uh, retinopathy works.
0: Okay, the next question is from Janet. Do optometrists have the same type of cameras to see early signs of retinopathy, or is it essential to see an ophthalmologist?
1: So they have the same camera. Um, I think, as we were saying earlier, it's the it's the brain and the eyes on the other side that's looking at the photos. Um, we I, I don't I don't mean to to slag the optometrists. They do a vital job of screening, and if you look at it as their job is to screen you and say, hey, there's something going on, or there's nothing going on, that that's really what you expect. If there's something going on, they are not the best ones to decide how severe or how urgent that is. So. Um, I, I think they're great for screening, particularly in people who are at lower risk, particularly people who have no retinopathy. Uh, those are fantastic people for them to screen. Um, as your disease gets worse, uh, then, then you should be seeing an ophthalmologist. Janice, I'm uh, um, Janet, did you want to follow
0: up? i know she's on the call okay yeah. um oh janet um, yeah, i was just to... going to
5: say that um um yes um i did see ophthalmologists pretty regularly but in our town um they're pretty busy and i don't have s- eye problems so i made sure that the optometrist i was seeing was very good recommended from my doctor and i've been a diabetic for over 50 years now and i still don't he cannot see i've had little spots but i can't see them so that's very good that. So thanks,
0: that was the answer that I was looking for. Great, thanks, Janet. Ali, did you wanna go ahead and ask your question in the box since I can't even pronounce the ping or that word, so I'll leave it up to you. Um, yeah, so basically I was asking, like I've got
6: cataracts from my 30s. When I went to the retinal specialist, he told me, he's like, oh, you know you've got cataracts? I'm like, no, I didn't know I had cataracts. The optometrist, optometrist did not tell me that. So um, anyway, so since then, I have this year developed Pinguecula, which I know is pretty mild condition. Everybody's like, ah, oh, it's no big deal. And I've been using the artificial tears, so I appreciate the comments about the artificial tears. But with having all three, is there any additional concern I should be, or any anything different I should be doing or taking
1: note of? Um, so just for everybody else, I'll Pinguecula, are basically like calluses on the surface of the eye. So the white part of the eye has a mucous membrane lining like the inside of your mouth. It's moist and smooth. That's the eye move with no friction. If it gets chronically irritated by looking at a screen all day or being out in the sun, it dries and thickens and becomes like the outside of your lip. And so it's irritating because when you blink, you feel it. It can get you know puffy and irritated. Um, and sometimes it grows and covers the colored part of your eye. We call it a, a pterygium. Um, so, I mean, uh, the, you, you have obviously diabetes predisposing you to cataracts, sun exposure uh, or UV exposure more, more generally sort of predisposes you to cataracts and, and pinguecula as well. So, I mean, that's, that's probably the only extra piece that I would say is that, you know, you will have to be careful about UV exposure. Um, and that means sun protection, hat with a broad brim, sunglasses, um, it means lubricating your eyes so they don't dry out as much and maybe, you know, making sure that you um, reduce the UV from your computer, whether that's a glare monitor or those blue tinted glasses that people use, or just fiddling with the contrast and, and brightness settings so that you cut back. Um, that, that's the only real consideration. I mean, um, ultraviolet plus diabetes are, are both things that, that uh, accelerate cataract development.
0: Thank you. Cheryl, you wanted to ask your question on your own?
3: Uh,
1: yeah,
7: just easier to ask than type. Um, yeah. I recently heard that somebody had um, multiple vitrectomies, like over two. And so I was confused because I figured you could only just have like one per eye. So like, how does that happen? Like, is it just an ongoing process that can keep going? Or is there like a limit?
1: Uh. So. Um... Like, although we call the surgery a vitrectomy, meaning you're breaking up that vitreous jelly and sucking it out, most of the time that's secondary to to what you really want to deal with. So usually the reason why you're in there is because there's scar tissue, um, blood vessels that are growing, traction on your retina, pulling it off. And so you have to remove the jelly to get access to your your retina. But now you're trying to peel off the, the scar tissue, You're kind of trying to reattach retina if it's detached, and you're kind of laser to kind of get things to hold in place. So those um, those problems with the retina can recur because if you still have poor blood supply to your retina, um, then you're gonna kind of keep getting new blood vessel growth and scarring and stuff like that. So you're right; it's it's a bit of a, a misnomer because the vitrectomy name you're right once you've done a vitrectomy there's no vitreous jelly in there all you're sucking out is fluid uh, but really you're going in there to chase the the other issues that are going on with the retina
0: okay great and i think we have our last question from shauna shauna did you want to ask in person sorry uh yeah sorry everyone no, It's a bit late so i don't, I
7: don't want to waste any time if this was already asked but I was uh, curious to the difference between um, having your eye lasered and the last time I went to the um, doctor he actually suggested the shot first Mm -hmm. so I had the shot and so just curious to those procedures and if there's any benefit for one over the other and um, yeah any feedback for that would be helpful.
1: Um, So if you dial back the clock probably 15 years, all we really had available for, for diabetic therapy was, was laser. The idea of laser is um, two things. If there's new blood vessel growth, we sacrifice your peripheral vision to save the center. So each we put in thousands of laser shots, that's panretinal photocoagulation to kind of uh, reduce the, the oxygen demands of the retina those vessels to regress. We can use the laser to tickle blood vessels that are leaking near the center to stop them from working, from from leaking. The problem is that the laser is a pretty crude way of of dealing with this. So um, the shots are actually, um, they're anti-VEGF, vascular endothelial growth factor. They actually stop a chemical that's released by inflammatory cells that makes new blood vessels grow and so they initially were used for age-related macular degeneration, for wet age-related macular degeneration, but they've expanded to any kind of vascular de- disease in the retina As we were talking about earlier. Uh, diabetes is a vascular disease. So by stopping new blood vessel growth, you kind of get less leakage, you get less bleeding, um, and it works faster than laser. So a lot, of, a lot of what's happening these days is that we use the shots early to stabilize it, and we use the laser in addition, a lot of times, to kind of give you a, a, long-term, a long-term treatment. So um, that's, the, that's the, the general take these days, is uh, we do both. The injection gives you a shorter-term um, effect, the laser gives you the longer-term effect.
5: Thanks. Great, and our, um, our last
0: question is from E H EHSlaptop1, battery handle, um, I don't know who that is. So um, would you like to ask your question in person?
8: Hi, thank you. Uh, my name is Ashley, but I'm just on the work computer. So that's why it comes up with that uh, her, her name. Um, it's just a question about the UV uh, like filtering or the glare preventing glasses. So I don't usually wear prescription glasses or contact lenses and I never have. I never used to spend much time in front of a screen, but due to COVID, my work changed. Now in front of the screen eight hours a day. And I did get myself some of those UV filtering or preventing glasses, but whenever I wear them, they make my eyes tired. So I don't wear them very often. And I just wondered, could this be related to diabetes or just because I'm not used to wearing glasses? And I should also add that I get my eyes checked once a year um, and I, it's never been an indication that I like, need a prescription or anything for glasses. So I just wasn't sure if it was diabetes related or just because I'm not used to wearing glasses. Thank you. Um,
1: can, can I, how, how old are you? I, I, just- Oh, um,
8: so I am almost 33. I was diagnosed back in 1997, so a long time ago. And I guess I'm one of those few people that after almost 25 years, I have no signs of diabetic retinopathy. <laughs>
1: excellent um, so um, you know my my somewhat facetious answer is that you know we're supposed to prance on the savannah and and our, our forebears did not spend eight hours a day on the computer I mean your eyes aren't designed for that and so we we kind of have to work to to have it um, have it comfortable so I mean the glare protecting glasses do not work for everybody so for some people they help for some people they don't so I I think you have to start off with saying it is not a panacea. Um, the, the, the fact that you're diabetic is not likely to be a contributing factor to your eye fatigue. Um, the most common issues are, are dry eyes. And then secondly, depending on age, whether your focusing ability at that distance is an issue. So usually it's in your early 40s that we start, you know, talking about like reading glasses, like computer glasses for people that work all day. So that's how I was asking about your age. Um, so, um, kind of answering your question, no, it's not the diabetes, and yes, it's, it's the fact that you're not used to wearing glasses and maybe they're not, uh, they're not comfortable, but if you've given it a reasonable try and it's not working, then we look at the other things that you can do, and the other things that we do to reduce fatigue from computers is to ensure that we minimize reflections off of them, off windows and off of, um, off of overhead lights. We fix the brightness and the contrast. We take breaks to look away. We, we remember to blink while we're on the computer and we use lubricating drops. So, I mean, there's, a, there's sort of a whole host of, uh, of things that, that we all should be doing to sort of reduce fatigue um, on, on the computer.
5: Great.
0: Um, so I want to thank Dr. Shan for coming, and I wanted to give Dave Gardner, who I see on screen, my Dave, a chance to um, you know make any comments or remarks since you're the one who recommended Dr. Shan. There
2: we go. Hey, Dr. Shan, uh, thanks for doing this. That was wonderful. You rock. Um, uh, I was asked. You know, we were all asked if. Uh, if there should be someone, that, or if there's someone that uh, we'd appreciate uh, listening to, and so I suggested an ophthalmologist, and Dr. Tang said, "Well, can you rope in yours?" And I went, oh, "That's kind of uncomfortable." So anyway, uh, Dr. S, thank you for doing this. I appreciate it. I'm out.
0: Okay, great. Um, so just to respect your time, we're going to move on to the second component. But um, thank you, Dr. Shan, for answering all these questions. I mean, um, it's a The topic of eye health within diabetes is probably one that I know the least about, so I learned a lot tonight and I'm sure everyone else learned a lot tonight as well. So thank you for um, spending your time um, one hour of your evening with us. Okay, so um, we're going to move on to Cheryl and Allie. Um, and I'm gonna ask uh, Saraya to do the introductions again. Cheryl and Allie, they both have had retinopathy and have been treated and they had you know, their own journey. Um, so um, they're gonna share their experiences. Um, Saraya, do you wanna do the introduction of Cheryl and then Allie?
9: Yes, hi everyone. I'm Saraya. I'm the uh, coordinator for the huddle. I'm the one who spends you with all those emails. It's so nice to see so many faces. Um, so after such an interesting talk by Dr. Shan, I have the pleasure of introducing our next two speakers, the wonderful Cheryl and Ali, who have kindly volunteered their time to share their personal stories about um, their experiences with retinopathy. So Cheryl is a 35-year-old university student studying business. She has had T1D for 23 years. She underwent a kidney transplant last year and she also has celiac and cyclic vomiting syndrome. She was first diagnosed with diabetic retinopathy in 2009. Over the past 12 years, she has had multiple eye injections and laser treatments to deal with the retinopathy. And in 2017, she had a vitrectomy on her left eye in Vancouver. It was a very simple and quick procedure. Um, She was in and out within the same day and it went so smoothly that when she's asked about previous surgeries, she actually often forgets to add the vitrectomy to the list. She sees her optometrist uh, once a year and um, sees her ophthalmologist about once every nine to 12 months in Vancouver. Her eyes are currently very healthy um, and she has worn glasses and contacts for about 12 years, but legally doesn't need them to drive. And our next speaker, Allison. Um, she has had type 1 for over 30 years after being diagnosed at age 11 in Northern Ireland, where she was born and raised. Ali moved to Canada to live in Kimberley, which is a small mountain town in the East Kootenays. About seven years ago on a routine checkup with an optometrist, Ali found out that she had retinopathy, which required immediate treatment. From that point, Ali has made dozens of trips to a retinal specialist in Calgary, for extensive laser treatment and Avastin injections. Retinal hemorrhages became a common occurrence and Ali went through three vitrectomy surgeries. Retinopathy prompted her to switch from the regime regime of multiple daily injections and finger prick testing to embrace using CGM and insulin pump. Today, Ali's retinopathy is stable and she has graduated to annual checkups. Allie will be joining us from her home near Kimberley where she lives with her husband and her babies. So welcome Cheryl and Ally. We're very excited to hear your stories.
0: Great, thanks, Soraya. I asked um, Cheryl and Allie if, um, if they could share their journey, um, again talk about it from their own mouths, um, you know from the you know first symptoms to when they were diagnosed to Um, how treatment was and recovery. So um, I'm gonna ask Cheryl to first uh, share.
7: Hi everyone, thanks for coming tonight. Um, So as mentioned, I've had T1D for 23 years. I was in eighth grade. Um, I actually started, I had to get glasses in the ninth grade. So it's been a little bit longer than 12 years. In 2009, I was living in Northern Alberta and I hadn't been taking the greatest care of my diabetes and ended up moving back to my hometown of Williams Lake as I was very sick and was just recently diagnosed with celiac disease. Um, And what started for me was the pooling of the blood behind your eyes. So like how I describe it to people is it looked like oil or gas on water. Like when I looked out, you you couldn't see the blood looking at me, but I could see it looking out. And so, I was referred to an ophthalmologist in Vancouver, and I started seeing a man, his name was Dr. Potter at West Coast Retina. I saw him continuously for about two or three years in Vancouver. And then I decided to move back up to um, Northern Alberta and started seeing a different ophthalmologist in Edmonton named Dr. Samani. And continuously every year went to um, to see him. And so I've gone through lots of laser and lots of injections back and forth. Um, And yeah, and so I, I ended up moving back to BC in 2015. I was extremely sick. And that's when my kidneys started to fail. Um, And actually my vitrectomy happened in 2015 not 2017 that was my mistake and so i saw my eye doctor in williams lake and was immediately referred to a specialist in kamloops who sent me right down to vancouver and it was so quick that i moved back to williams lake in august and my vitrectomy was october 5th and so i got right in there was it was desperately needed but as I mentioned, it was an extremely um, simple procedure that I, I often forget to tell when I'm filling out medical forms that that was a surgery I had. Um, and so I haven't had laser or injections since pro- probably 2015, I think it was. Um, my eyes are finally in the best shape that they have been. And I've also graduated to annual appointments with my ophthalmologist and I see my optometrist as well once a year um I don't actually legally need my glasses to drive but I I wear them anyways because I'm comfortable with them um and yeah the the doctor talking about the laser it um it's terrible I'm not going to sugarcoat it it's one of the most painful things that I've had to go through and I would take having an injection to the middle of my eye any day than the laser it's um it's very uncomfortable but it's necessary losing my sight is something i've always been terrified of um my mom was with me through all of this she was my support and she was by my side when i was in vancouver having my surgery for my eye she also donated her kidney to me so she's been there through everything with me um yeah. And so I wasn't working at the time of the surgery. I was just kind of getting back into a routine of living back in BC and I was really sick. So it didn't exactly affect work or school or anything like that because it, I was too sick to do any of that stuff anyways. So yeah, that's my story. Um, I'm I'm seeing well now. I, I, the doctor mentioned something about how they sacrifice the, the outside of your eye to save the center. And I had never heard Heard that before and that's exactly how my left eye is like I can see well out of it but it's the peripheral that definitely they did sacrifice that for the middle so that was really interesting for me so yeah that's kind of my story so far with having diabetic retinopathy.
0: Thanks Cheryl. You're welcome. Um, Ali, um, I'm, uh, I'm gonna have Allie talk a little uh, a bit and then please feel free to um, submit questions in the chat box um
6: Ali would you like to share sure yeah I'd be happy to share so as as you mentioned um and sorry I think it was sorry I did the intro I'm from Northern Ireland so I moved to Canada in 2007 so up until then my healthcare was looked after in the British United Kingdom system and as an adult there you you go to a basically a It could be a mobile booth or something. It's not the optometrist. You go to like a retinal checkup that's specific for type 1 diabetics and you get your retinal photographs taken once a year. And their threshold for for referring you to a retinal specialist is if you have seven microaneurysms. So before I moved to Canada, I had microaneurysms. Uh, I mean, I, I got diagnosed with type 1 in 1987. I moved here in 2007. So yes, 20 years later things were happening so they, they they told me you know you have things going on but it's not at the point where we need to start laser or anything um i moved to canada to Kimberley. i fell in love with the mountain guy in a ski town and here i am still which is fantastic um but the system here is quite different so in the uk you have a diabetic specialist here i went to get set up and they said oh your gp looks after your diabetes i'm like oh okay that's different so i go to the gp um in kimberley this little town with one traffic light and about 7000 people and um he's like you know i'm going to look after your diabetes i said well what about i don't know i've heard about op- uh, endocrinologists oh no you don't need to go to see the endo um and what about my eyes well yeah the optometrist in kimberley can do your eye checks so so i did go to the optometrist carefully for my eye checks and it was october 31st 2013 it was halloween the optometrist is dressed up as, as a character from um flintstones and i i kid you not she nearly crapped her pants when she looked at my eyes she was like <gasps> From the last time i'd been there when she said oh you've got some stuff going on there's some stuff with your peripheral vision but come back in a year i go back and she was like oh my god it's gone off like i could see the photos my my left eye was like there was just stuff going on everywhere and my right eye was like not so bad but there was stuff going on there and she referred me to an ophthalmologist in cranbrook which is about 20 minutes 25 30 minutes away and the Cranberg ophthalmologist office she said if you don't hear from if you don't get an appointment in 2 weeks call me back so they said we can book you in in the new year but we haven't opened our book to book you in for the new year and this was like october 31st november so i phoned i phoned the optometrist the barney rubble wife optometrist and she said um yeah i'm going to refer you to you to a calgary retina retinal specialists so um, I was in within two weeks immediate laser uh, I've had 26 appointments for laser Avastin and follow-up surgery um, with Dr Adaria in the Mitchell Eye Center in Calgary um, it's about a five-hour drive with stops because we like to take breaks if you if you're from Alberta to get to Kimberly's maybe four hours but for us we have to stop and up and everything so can you imagine five hours each way my husband drove me almost every time uh, when he was too busy with work uh, we asked friends to drive me and give them lots of gas money and um, yeah so the laser treatment started and Cheryl mentioned you know she said it, it's not very comfortable I mean it sounds really oh people get corrective laser treatment it's all very oh it's fine it's like no Retinal laser treatment isn't the same and your brain starts to feel like it's, it's going to go on fire. It's not very comfortable. Um, then the hemorrhages happened. So backtracking my symptoms, I really didn't have symptoms. I had one little thing in my eye. So that's why I want to tell everybody one of the key messages is go to your eye appointments every year and I'm not sure I would trust the local optometrist i would go to an ophthalmologist in the uk legally an optometrist cannot be responsible for diabetes eye care i've talked with ophthalmologists in where i live and they, they don't agree that it should be left to the responsibility potentially of an opt op, optometrist so i recommend go to an ophthalmologist um, if you can even if you have to drive like i drive five hours every time to go to my ophthalmologist now so so yeah, so I only had one tiny thing that was like noticeable when I went to the ski hill on a flat light day, I'd be like, oh, there's like this thing in my eye. So the symptoms won't necessarily happen. The, the microaneurysms are really important and having a checkup where somebody can say, yep, I'm monitoring your microaneurysms. And yes, some may come, some may go, but if the number is increasing, you've got to keep an eye on that literally. And it's super important. So yeah so my eyes kind of blew up then i remember you know i had this laser treatment i go in and out and it was like very fast and furious we've it's really aggressive we've got to stop these bleeds it's proliferative retinopathy you've got all these leaky blood vessels so that was all well and good and then i just remember my husband's birthday i was out for dinner in kimberly and we were out with a group of friends and then the big bleed happens. And it's like, if you can imagine like a black spider's web just going across your eyeball, it freaked me right out. I'm sitting there and I don't even know what to say because it's my husband's birthday. And I'm like, what this? What so I didn't say anything. And then as soon as we drove home, I said, my eyeball is like blowing up. It's leaking like crazy. And I don't know what to do. I've, 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 I really don't know what to do. So mid Eye center is closed phone the emerge they're like we have no idea what to do we really have nothing that we can do for you if you come here so the next morning i phoned the mitchell eye center and they said stay with your head upright sleep sitting up and the idea is that you try to drain the blood that has leaked into your vitreous jelly you try to drain it by staying upright don't bend over don't have hot showers how many times have I, have i been through this so sometimes it cleared and then sometimes it didn't and that's when you need the vitrectomy so i went in for my first vitrectomy and i thought i'll be under Mm-mm. you're awake they it's not very pleasant they have to freeze your ret- your optic nerve and then they basically suck out the, the part of your vitreous jelly that has all the blood particles that makes you not able to see anymore so that happened and that was great and there's a I mean Cheryl was very lovely about it but I don't know having my head down for 10 or 12 days like you have to sleep with your head down you have to stay head down you can't drive you can't look at a computer you can't look at a phone audiobooks became my best friend Um, so that was vitrectomy number one then my other eye went off And it had to have a vitrectomy because it wasn't clear. And I should mention when you drive from Calgary to Kimberley, the altitude changes. So when they do a vitrectomy, they suck out the jelly and then they put an eye, uh, like an air bubble in the back of your eye. That's why you have to keep your head down to have that air bubble on your retina. So I had to keep my head down the whole way. But we had to stop every five minutes because we go over mountains up and dawn and the bubble changes. So I had a an app on my phone telling me what altitude we were at. And then we would stop and wait every five minutes, driving over via Nanton from Calgary to Kimberley. So that's fun. It took way more, longer than five hours. Um, meanwhile, my workplace, I was a director of sales and marketing at a big resort, and I lived seven minutes away. And they would just turn up. I'm off work on medical leave. ceo and the general manager would just turn up like days after my surgery and be like oh we just wanted to check up how your eyes are doing and i'm sitting with my head down and i've got and look i look like a mess and i'm like why are they doing this so long story short when i went back um after my second vitrectomy, they fired me and i didn't want to go through the whole stress of trying to sue them for discrimination because they knew i had retinopathy in both eyes and it was going off. Um, And then the the second eye vitrectomy, um, you know, you've got to go back the next day and then very regularly after the surgery. And after about, I think it was two weeks, um, Dr. Daddy, who's adorable, he's like, "Um, yeah, so it didn't work. So how's tomorrow to come in for a vitrectomy or Monday? Because this was Thursday. And I live five hours away and have cats and dogs and whatnot. So we said, well, maybe not tomorrow, but we'll come in for Monday for 6 a.m. surgery. So we had to come in on Sunday. So, But the good news is um, I'm stable as well. So I graduated to one-year appointments after. It, it, basically, it goes like you come back every week, and then it's every two weeks, and then it's four weeks, and then it's like a month, and then three months, and then six months, and then graduate to a year mm-hmm. and it's like proper graduation so i'm super stoked to say my eyes are stable i've graduated i i doctor daddy is like yeah the cataracts can wait they're not super aggressive and he like laughed at the pinguecula thing i was like so i've been doing lots of screen time this other thing say yeah like, don't worry about that you got other bigger fish to fry so uh yeah so the so it's it's been a long road it was it was 2015 when I was formally diagnosed I probably had retinopathy years before that but I don't think the optometrist in Kimberly had the skills and knowledge and expertise to diagnose me and I will say that to anybody who asked me and um, but I'm in a good place and I definitely prefer the injections to the laser and I'll take the Avastin injections through people even over going to the dentist so there there you go there's my story
0: Great. Thank you so much, Cheryl and Allie for sharing. Um, I want to invite anyone to, you know, ask questions or even talk about their own um, experiences with vision health or retinopathy. So I have a question, Allie. Um, You said that, you know, in the UK, you need to have seven microaneurysms before you're allowed to, um, you know, take the next step. And how do you know if you had a microaneurysm? Like, do you know, or or you just happened to go in for a checkup and then they say, oh, it looks like you had a microaneurysm.
6: Uh, they count them from the photograph. So you don't know, I had no symptoms. I literally had no symptoms. And the, when they take that sort of very special retinal photograph, they can count the microaneurysms. So I think they have decided that if you have seven in that one photograph, that's a sign that you need to go see the retinal specialist. I mean, I, I think it's a great approach because it's prevention's better than cure. If they're, if you're starting to get retinopathy and you can like nip it in the bud, it's way better than having to have vitrectomies. so. Okay.
2: Yeah, I guess I'll, I'll share a little bit. I got, I think it would, would have been my first micro aneurysm and it was only because they were looking at it with, uh, the optometrist was looking at it with a different tool is my understanding. Like they actually had the, the, the different layers of your retina. And so that's where they actually like showed me. And, and it totally freaked me out. Like there was someone earlier that was talking about like their very first one and it felt like a failure. That's totally where I was it was like, holy crap, this is the beginning of the end. And I'm gonna go through what Allie's gone through and all those kinds of things like that. Um, my first one did resolve, so it's gone, but there's like another one that is still persistent. Um, so it was just kind of like cool. And I thank you so much you guys for sharing your stories because it's just like so much to know what might happen Uh, and knowing what I need to do for myself if that were to happen. So just wanted to to say thank you so much for for explaining that. I can't imagine how personal it was, so thank you very much.
0: Marina, you have a question? Marina,
10: your hand is raised. Uh, Yes, I do. I uh, think my question was uh, in the chat, uh, but uh, it was about the lowering of um, hemoglobin A1C and the speed of it. Because when I was doing the treatment, and again, I'm sorry, because I joined a little bit later, maybe it was raised already, this uh, issue. Uh, But if you lower it too fast, it affect your retina. So don't like, why I'm sharing it, because like people usually are like, oh, I'm so scared for the eye uh, diseases. Let's just jump at the normal uh, levels from a higher levels. And it should have like a certain speed that you should lower your A1C because when you do it abruptly, uh, it it affects your retina. At least my um, ophthalmologist was telling me so uh, 15 years ago or 10 years ago when I was uh, doing the uh, retina treatment. Thank you.
4: Jerry. Hi, uh, he actually mentioned a little bit about that. When you do go down whether you go fast or slow you will find that your vision decreases and it's scary because you're getting under control and things seem to be getting worse but it will come back and it comes up at every uh, session that i've gone to and every time they say reassure them it might take as long as a year but control Maybe not as fast as possible because you don't want to create all sorts of other problems, uh, including an eating disorder. You just want to get as much control as soon as you can, and the eyes will follow. It will come. So, And it will come back if it's due to just high blood sugars.
11: Um, I had a question too, just regarding. So when you guys were talking about the checkups of going to like, say you're just like regular eye checks up checkups versus seeing the ophthalmologist. So did they not like see anything or were they not able to tell that you had like as many issues as you did? And did it take going to them? Like, would you recommend kind of like, so I'm 21, would you recommend that I would just start go seeing like an ophthalmologist, like make that appointment, make sure everything's good there, and then just like continue with those regular eye checkups or just continue with the checkups as I go along just kind of wanted you guys to gauge in on that part too
6: I'm happy to comment and maybe Cheryl afterwards uh, from my personal experience Caleb I would get the best possible eye care that you can because I've lost vision in both my eyes for a while and it's scary like I had the contingency plan in my head for what I do when I can't you know, I can't work on a computer and have my job that I have right now and uh, so my personal experience was that the optometrist didn't have the expertise to interpret what they were seeing because even even that there was a technician Dave Clayton if you know him there Nadia <laughs> he said you know what I did the, the, the peripheral vision test and I knew I was like oh I have not I don't think I'm getting these like I don't think I'm doing very well and he was like oh, that was yeah those results were interesting and that at that appointment that that appointment there was there was like yeah there's stuff going on but come back in a year now in the UK they had already flagged that I had probably five Microaneurysms, and their threshold is seven to go to the retinal specialist. If I had stayed in, U- in the UK, I probably would have been, probably 2009, I w- I- I'm just guessing ballpark because I came here in 2007, I'm guessing 09, I probably would have been already with the retinal specialist and having some laser. So, and I also just want to comment on a separate note that I know diabetics who've had pretty good control, who've just had diabetes for like 30 30 years um in BC, this is bc who've had to have laser surgery or laser treatment for retinopathy and they they've had pretty good control so my message is you could have no symptoms of retinopathy and just it develops and it gets worse and if you don't get the right uh eye doctor looking after like monitoring your eyes you could end up like me and be like oh poop i have to get a lot of stuff got done pretty quickly and then they blow up and then you have three surgeries later and lose your job and decide on a career change. So um, i short, long story short, Caleb, I would go for the best. I would go for an ophthalmologist if you can get it. I mean, even if you have to pay for it, it's, it's worth it. I don't know if Cheryl wants to add to that.
7: Yeah. Hi, Caleb. So I have a completely different experience than Ali does. I've my optometrists have been bang on they have not waited if they saw anything I was in and I was in quick and that was in Williams Lake another very small town Um, my optometrist up there's amazing she still is my optometrist I drive three hours to see her and then I saw a collective of doctors Um, I mentioned Dr. Potter before and then there's Dr. Albiani Dr. Merker and Dr. Kirker all at West Coast Retina and I have never had to wait like people it was like you know I, I had seen um, an ophthalmologist in 2015 in Edmonton earlier in the year and then by October I was having my vitrectomy which was just seen in September in Williams Lake so um, yeah I, I totally agree with what Ali is saying like if you think that your optometrist isn't being as thorough or whichever then asked to be referred. I've also never had to pay for anything um, at my optometrist or my ophthalmologist. I think actually at my optometrist, I've paid like maybe $50 because MSP pays for the majority of an eye exam for type one diabetics in BC. So, yeah.
11: Thank you so much, you guys. That was really good information. There's a lot of stuff that I never even thought to do, which is pretty much, never even thought of going to an ophthalmologist unless there was like an issue that was present at the checkup. So yeah, thank you so much. And thanks both of you for sharing your stories. That was a lot of information and a lot of stuff to ease some stress surrounding different parts of it. So,
5: Can I just okay. to, um the Go only ahead. thing I was, Go I was just going to add to a thing about the optometrist. Um, I've heard some stories also from long ago with, with optometrists, and I know they have better equipment now, but that's what I was trying to say. I went to an, my specialist. Told me I should always go to an ophthalmologist, which I had for many years. And it, the only reason I'm not necessarily going to one now is because I—they are—they're all very clear on that. My eyes were all right, and there's a very—I know that there's a very at least a few in our town who are very good optometrists that will send you really quickly. But I. I know there can be some that are not as good so so it is important to at least have seen an ophthalmologist here and there I think it's very hard to get into them as he said because there's not very many in our town we've had one leave and there's been they're really busy so that's the only and I know that I have a really good optometrist but I'll have to check when he leaves but um, so that was what I was going to say also ophthalmologists is they can see they just know how to read it better and that kind of thing so
0: Okay, great. Um, It's 7.33. Um, I wanna thank Cheryl and Allie for sharing. You know, um, a lot of times health problems, it's just really vulnerable. You're kind of exposing yourself by sharing these stories. Um, And, uh, you know, I think it's uh, great when people are willing to share because I've heard from most people um, when we talk about complications, I don't know, probably 85% say that um, retinopathy and vision problems is their biggest worry. Like that's their number one, they, they will do anything to not have that happen. So obviously it's something that people think about a lot. Um, so thank you. Uh, I wanna also give a preview of the next two adults, Um, July and August. July, we have Dr. Jordana Capaluto I'm coming as our guest speaker. Um, Jordan. <laughs> I know Dave loves her because this is Dave's endo. Um, and you know, you guys hear me talk about endos I love and there's probably, you know, I can count on one hand, the endos I think are phenomenal. Um, Dr. Capoluto was one and her, her specialty, there's two specialties that she's gonna talk about. And one is lipohypertrophy and that's the injection site. So, you know, a lot of you guys have um, mentioned, okay, well, you know, I my injection site, it's not absorbing insulin as, as it was and what's going on, do I need to rotate? So that is one of the things that she is an expert on. The other thing she's a uh, topic she's an expert on is obesity and weight issues. Um, so she works at the bariatric center. Um, so, any person who, you know, if you're interested in asking any weight related questions, she is the endo to answer. Um, so that's July. And in August, we have cooking for Caleb. I mean, cooking with Caleb. So, Caleb is going to be our own um, food network channel. Huddle edition, Um, and she's gonna, we're gonna try to do this as a webinar, maybe where people can still, um, you know, write in the chat box, but um, we're going to have Caleb cook for us. And Caleb, do you want to just say a couple words of what you plan? Yeah, it's funny. I was just
11: telling Dr. Tang, I'm actually like making some low carb Power Bowl right now, but yeah, so I'll be cooking just some recipes, I tend to make a whole bunch of them of stuff I see that sounds delicious. And I don't want to be out for the count for the rest of the night because of high blood sugars. So I'll be making just one of my favorite recipes. And it's actually vegan, like gluten free as well. So it's kind of adaptable for anyone and you can make it with dairy or meat. But yeah, I'll just be going through that um, really easy recipe and hope to be able to do some more. And we actually feature some of them on T1D reach out as well. So yeah, exciting. I hope to see you guys
0: there. Great. And we're also going inter- to uh, invite a sous chef, um, someone who maybe is you know, a little kid with type 1 who's going to help out Caleb um, with all the cooking and chopping and whatever <laughs> you direct them to do. Um, so, I, I want to also invite everyone, anyone else if you have a topic that you really are um, interested in or an expert in or have personal experience, um, let us know because we'll create a session around you. You know, with the eye health, I knew Allie, I've known Allie um, for a while. So, I know that was a topic that's passionate for her and Cheryl again. Um, I've just met in the past, um, you know, six months. And so, um, if there is a topic that you are, you know, really, really kind of an expert in, like traveling, you know, and type one, whatever. Let us know because we'd love to create a session around you, uh, bring me an expert and have you lead a discussion. Okay, great. So thanks everyone for coming and hope to see you in July with Dr. Capilouto.
3: Thank you.